It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Brazil's left-wing president Lula is back in office and wants to undo the policies of his populist predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. That won't be easy. Mr. Bolsonaro still has fans among evangelicals, gun nuts, and big tech companies. And British boarding schools are often upheld as the pinnacle of privilege for the poshest kids. But psychologists argue that sending children away creates problems in later life. So why are parents still spending so much on these institutions? But first... On Saturday, a US warship, the Chung-Hoon, was on a joint operation with the Canadian Navy vessel HMCS Montreal. The ships were floating through the Taiwan Strait, the contested waters between the island of Taiwan and mainland China. The Americans said that they were simply asserting the rights to freedom of navigation in an international waterway. But it wasn't all plain sailing. The ships were cut off by a Chinese warship. A crew from Global News, a Canadian broadcaster, was aboard the Montreal and recorded the close encounter. We shot this video of one of the Chinese ships stepping up their aggression, picking up considerable steam coming in from the left, telling the Chung-Hoon over the radio to move or there'd be a collision. The Americans told the Chinese to stay clear of their ship, but ultimately they were cut off and needed to slow down to avoid getting hit. The two ships missing each other by only 150 yards. The Chung-Hoon was forced to slow and American commanders denounced the naval action as unsafe. It's just the latest near-miss to happen in the region. A few days earlier in the South China Sea, a Chinese military aircraft conducted what US forces called aggressive maneuvers in front of an American spy plane. Both incidents could have turned ugly and escalated into something much bigger than a naval spat. And the dire state of the US-China relationship is doing little to reduce that chance of conflict. For the past week, I've been travelling with the American Defence Secretary, Lloyd Austin, as he's been touring Asia. He's been to Japan, to Singapore, and right now I'm in New Delhi with him. Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor. The diplomatic highlight has been the conference known as the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, which brings together the defence ministers and experts from across the Asia-Pacific region. It's meant to be a forum for discussion and for countries to understand each other, but the tension between America and China was all too apparent. Anton, tell us what happened. 
One of the important things that takes place on the fringes of this event is a meeting of the American and Chinese defense ministers. They met last year, for instance. For a long time, the Americans have been trying to get the Chinese to agree to guardrails, a set of rules that would prevent accidents uh, and manage any crisis that emerges from them. In other words, precisely the kind of incident that we've been seeing in recent days. But this time around, the Chinese defense minister, Li Shangfu, refused to meet Mr. Austin. The Chinese even declined lower-level contacts. The two men were seated at the same VIP table. They shook hands, but they had no conversation of substance. And when Lloyd Austin gave a keynote address on Saturday, he said China had to act as a more responsible power. The United States believes that open lines of communication with the People's Republic of China are essential, especially between our defense and military leaders. For responsible defense leaders, the right time to talk is now. He cast China as a regional bully and America as a champion of international law and of a free and open Indo-Pacific in which smaller countries should be free to choose their foreign and economic policies. We will support our allies and partners as they defend themselves against coercion and bullying. To be clear, we do not seek conflict or confrontation, but we will not flinch in the face of bullying or coercion. Now, all of this is especially important in the Taiwan Strait. At a time of growing alarm about the danger of war over Taiwan between America and China, his words were intended to convey both firmness but also reassurance. And how did the Chinese delegation respond? On Sunday, General Li gave his response to Mr. Austin in his own keynote address. He didn't mention the United States directly by name, but it was clear who he was talking about when he talked about outsiders trying to impose hegemony, and he did allude to recent military incidents. As defense minister, every day I see a lot of information about foreign vessels and fighter jets coming to areas near our territory. They're not here for innocent passage. They're here for provocation. He said some foreign forces, meaning the United States, were creating unnecessary tension, particularly over Taiwan. He said China hoped for peaceful reunification with Taiwan, but he refused to rule out the use of military force to retake it. And he quoted a Chinese proverb. When friends visit us, we welcome them with fine wine. When jackals or wolves come, we will face them with shotguns. In other words, the Chinese are saying the Americans have no business in Asia. They regard its military presence as an intrusion that will lead only to chaos. And Anton, you were with Lloyd Austin. Why is it so hard for him and Li Shangfu to talk? The Chinese didn't say precisely why General Li Shangfu didn't speak to Lloyd Austin. But he did speak about the need for mutual respect. The right way for China and the U.S. to get along is following the three principles of mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, and win-win cooperation. So this seems to be an allusion to the fact that General Li Shangfu is under sanctions. These were imposed on him by the previous administration, by the presidency of Donald Trump, before General Li was defense minister, but it's now getting in the way of the ability of the Americans and the Chinese to speak. The broader problem is the political pressure that both sides are under as their rivalry escalates. 
incidents and problems keep derailing the attempt to begin a broader diplomatic dialogue. And on the military side in particular, I think there's a specific disagreement. The Americans want guardrails to reduce the chance of incidents and of them turning into a major crisis. But you get the sense that the Chinese think guardrails, in effect, legitimize America's presence close to Chinese territory and airspace and maritime borders. So for them, I think, the point is to create danger for the Americans when they come close. Nevertheless, when I was with Lloyd Austin, he made clear that the door to dialogue remained open. When they're ready to engage, they will engage. But it's also important to note that the mill-to-mill channel is not the only channel. The State Department is uh, engaging in their channels, or National Security Advisor is engaging. In other words, both sides are accusing each other of being the intransigent party. And one reason for that is that they're both trying to woo the waverers in the region who are torn between these two giants. And Anton, how are these waverers responding? With great trepidation is the answer. Many privately want the United States to remain engaged in the region militarily, but they also know that their strongest economic and trade ties are with China. They don't want to be forced to take sides and they're worried they will be badly hurt in any war. And what they've heard in recent days will not be reassuring. Their fear has been heightened in the past year, not just by the increasingly sharp rhetoric between America and China, but also by the war in Ukraine. And many draw parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. And maybe the most important parallel is the fact that a war that people thought improbable or even impossible is all too possible. And so you've been travelling with Austin throughout the region. So moving beyond China, how has he been received elsewhere? Well, what is striking is that the Americans in a very deliberate fashion, have been stitching together and strengthening their whole network of alliances and partnerships. So the Japanese have just announced a near doubling of defense spending. The Americans are changing their deployments in Japan to be able to resist an attack more easily. If you go down the chain of islands, the Philippines, south of Japan, is allowing the Americans to use more bases, some of which are close to Taiwan, and the Americans are trying to help them become a more powerful military force. Further south, they've just signed a defense agreement with Papua New Guinea, which will begin to give Americans access to that area. And in Australia, they're also increasing their military presence with rotations of bombers and fighters and ground forces in essence, creating another military hub that is close enough for the Americans to project power into Southeast Asia, but far enough to be less vulnerable to Chinese missiles. And of course, the jewel in the crown is trying to bring India closer to the West. And you're seeing work going on to improve India's defense capability, not least through joint defense procurement deals. So when you look at the map running from Japan all the way across to India, it looks like a lattice work of arrangements designed to contain China. Anton, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Aura. Nice to talk to you.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Brazil's president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, or just Lula, has a tricky job ahead. He won his way back to the presidency in October. Narrowly beating incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, a proudly populist right-winger. Mr. Bolsonaro has fanatical supporters and has often been compared to Donald Trump for his policies, for his rhetoric, and for his behavior. Like Mr. Trump, he initially refused to concede defeat. In January, some of Mr. Bolsonaro's supporters stormed Brazil's Congress, Presidential Palace, and Supreme Court in an attempt to overturn the election. Lula now faces a polarized electorate. Nearly two-fifths of people polled still think the election was rigged. Yet Lula has made it his mission to undo Mr. Bolsonaro's work in office and the cult of Bolsonarismo, and perhaps to ensure that Mr. Bolsonaro cannot, like Mr. Trump, attempt a comeback. All that, though, is going to be harder than Lula thinks. When Lula entered office, he promised to reverse Mr. Bolsonaro's policies. Carolina Unzelt writes about Brazil for The Economist. For example, he prevented 10 state-owned enterprises from being privatized. He's also trying to tie gun regulations and also dismissed federal government soldiers from failing to prevent the riots that Mr. Bolsonaro supporters did in January. His allies in Congress announced new legislation to curb online disinformation. And all of this is part of the effort to try to erase Mr. Bolsonaro's legacy in Brazil. But that has been proven a very tough task. So that is to say that all of these efforts aren't actually erasing Mr. Bolsonaro's legacy? Well, there are some problems. First, Bolsonaro too has a lot of supporters, especially among younger Brazilians. An inquiry into the January riot is going to start soon in Congress, and two-fifths of Brazilians still don't think Mr. Bolsonaro played any role in the attack. And there is a question of whether voters in general like the policy decisions that Lula is making now. So part of the problem here is not what is being undone, but what's being done, I guess. What is it that people don't like about what Lula is doing? During the presidency, Bolsonaro passed at least 32 decrees, allowing Brazilians to buy more guns. And Lula is doing away with some of those. During Mr. Bolsonaro's term, the number of permits granted to buy guns increased by a factor of six. Lula has suspended new gun permits and required gun owners to register firearms by May 3rd. But lots of people did not, and lots more people own guns in the past. The second big policy is curbing online disinformation, which Mr. Bolsonaro is accused of spreading. 
two days after the attack on Congress, Mr. Bolsonaro posted and quickly deleted a video claiming the election was fraudulent. He later told the police that he uploaded the video by accident under the influence of painkillers. The main way Lula is trying to curb this kind of information is via a bill that his allies proposed in Congress. But in May, they were forced to postpone the vote because they didn't have enough congressional support, a problem that Lula is facing with other bills too. Bolsonaro supporters don't like the bill because there's a chance that he could be incriminated and tech companies don't like it either. One study by the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro found that Google altered search engine results so that news articles which opposed the bill would appear at the top of the page. Evangelical Christians were worried that it could impose passages of the Bible that could be considered homophobic. So they gather a lot of different groups around the opposition of this bill. So one of the biggest problems here is that there are still Bolsonaro allies in, in Congress, and so any law changes that might be underway are going to face real struggles. Bolsonaro's party controls almost a fifth of Congress now, and there is a caucus that's made up of mostly program congressmen that is also growing. Mr. Bolsonaro has family in Congress. His son is a senator, and he proposed a bill in April that could reverse Lula's policy, and any version of the fake news bill will probably be watered down, and even if it's eventually passed, it's particularly hard to control what Brazilians post online. What do you mean by that? Why is it hard to control what Brazilians post online compared with anywhere else? In countries like the U.S., viral posts spread on Facebook and over platforms where content can be easily analyzed. So fake news usually are on those platforms too. But in Brazil, it spreads on encrypted messaging groups like Telegram, WhatsApp, that are harder to access. So new legislation probably won't stop the spread of misinformation, including, say, elections information. So is the overall conclusion here that, that Lula is going to be unable to, to undo the Bolsonaro era, to erase the legacy as you describe it? It won't be easy for Lula to sideline Mr. Bolsonaro. But perhaps Mr. Bolsonaro will face problems in other fronts. Lots of people compare Mr. Bolsonaro with Donald Trump. But Bolsonaro, he's a different position than Trump. Under the American law, Mr. Trump can run from presidency again next year, even if he's convicted of a crime. He is facing six investigations now. Bolsonaro is being investigated in more than two dozen cases. He denies all wrongdoing. But if he were convicted, he would not be allowed to run. So maybe it's the legal system, not Lula, that will erase Mr. Bolsonaro's legacy. Carolina, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jason, for having me. The idea that British boarding schools are odd places is not exactly news. And historically, they could be pretty brutal places. Catherine Nixie writes about Britain for The Economist. Winston Churchill would remember in his prep school that the floggings were done until pupils bled freely and screamed loudly, while George Orwell was beaten so violently at his prep school that his headmaster broke his riding crop on him and reduced him to tears. Boarding schools are famous because for several centuries and for fat fees, they have provided the English upper classes with a ripping blend of architectural beauty and physical brutality. Harrow batted first in the annual match at Lord's, but Etonian bowling took heavy toll of their early wickets. A redeeming feature of the game was the brilliant sunshine, but that was poor consolation to Harrow. They gave the privileged children of England canings and neoclassical corridors and cold showers. They gave them sweeping lawns and the speeches of Cicero. 
They gave them lashings of Latin, and they gave them just plain old lashings. The Eton Wall game provides a picture that crops up once a year. They played every St Andrews Day. But they haven't scored a goal for years and years. So we keep on filming it in the hope that one year they might. And the pupils they produced were an equally idiosyncratic mixture of the sophisticated and the often childlike, who are known for mingling this kind of precocious boarding school brilliance with speech that never quite left the schoolroom. And pushing each other about without very much else happening. Of 57 British prime ministers, 20 went to Eton alone. The vast majority went to one boarding school or another. As Boris Johnson might say, crikey. But there are signs that the sheen is slightly coming off them. Their numbers are relatively constant. They hover around the 70,000 mark. But as a route to success, the British boarding schools are today feeling less certain. In the 19th century, Cambridge University used to go to Eton to find pupils to fill its places, and they'd have days which, as they were called, would be days of great feasting as they picked which Etonians would come to study in the cloisters of Cambridge. And even well into the 21st century, Eton offered a pretty good shot at Oxbridge. 99 pupils were accepted from there to Oxford and Cambridge in 2014. But that's looking less certain these days. In 2021, Eton only managed to get 48 pupils into Oxford and Cambridge. By contrast, Brampton Manor College, a state school in East London, got 89 pupils in last year alone. There is a kind of growing discomfort among more people with the sort of privilege that boarding schools embody. And this is partly because they've got so much more expensive than they used to be. So the annual fees for Eton in the era when Boris Johnson went were a mere £861 a year. That was not negligible. It was £10,000 or so today. But it was kind of doable for people in the middle classes. Today, Eton's fees are, as its website explains, £15,432 a half, which, as its website explains, means thrice yearly. Apparently, you don't get an understanding of fractions for that much money. And for that, you get a staggering amount. So present-day Etonians get to enjoy, among other things, one pool, two chapels, three theatre spaces. They get a composer in residence, a filmmaker in residence, a pet pianist, and even a director of inclusive education, who observes on her webpage that the challenge of promoting diversity at Eton is to enable people to talk about uncomfortable things like maybe those £46,000 a year fees. There are people who now say that to send a young child away is not privilege. In fact, it's brutality. I spoke to lots of people who said, you know, I wasn't privileged being at my boarding school. Privilege for me would have been to be at home with my mum and dad, to have a hug before I went to bed. What this was was deprivation. I was being deprived of a normal childhood. In 2011, the term boarding school syndrome was coined. And it was coined to cover a series of symptoms that psychiatrists were seeing again and again. They said that we keep seeing, in those who've been to boarding school, and especially those who went when they were very young, we keep seeing the same things. An inability to form relationships, depression, emotional repression, an inability to kind of articulate what feelings they're feeling. Defenders argue that boarding schools have changed massively and that it's hard, even obtuse, to extrapolate from the experiences of children who went there 30 or 40 years ago. The environment is now completely different. You know, they look different. You don't get those iron bedsteads in rows. 
There's obviously no corporal punishment. Whereas once pupils would go away from home for months on end, in some cases even years, now many young boarders are weekly or even flexi-boarding, which is where they go home during the week. Even when they're away, they can video call their parents from their smartphones. And attitudes are really different. So whereas boarding school masters and mistresses would once have talked about the stiff upper lip, they talk about safeguarding and mental health first aiders and safe spaces, all of this kind of thing. So the atmosphere is hugely different. In the olden days, the cruelty was almost certainly a feature, not a bug. They really went for it, the Victorians. There was this strongly held idea that Britain was top nation and the way that it had become top nation and produced such top men was by being extremely cruel to them when they were younger. The misquotation of Wellington that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. To produce the kind of imperial world-conquering men who could go out and rule the Raj, boarding schools were self-consciously pretty brutal places. The empire might have been happy, but its children absolutely were not. Orwell has a lovely line in his essay, Such With Joys, that after his beating from his headmaster, he felt that life was more terrible and that he was more wicked than he had imagined. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.